As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and with me today to talk about actual U.S. soccer, the USA's nil-nil draw with Wales, is a man who never is false about his love for a number nine. It's Joe Lowry. <laughs> Hello, Joe. Hello, Taylor. That was that was just exquisite. Exquisite work. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I did not pay as much attention to Twitter during this game trying to focus on what was actually happening. Check Twitter afterwards, and false nine seems to be a topic of conversation. Do you think we got that trending, at least nationwide? Probably not, but I don't know. I like to think that soccer's really made it, if we can make that happen. I, I did enjoy Mike Watella of Soccer America asking why everybody insists on talking about a number nine when the person who played that position today was a number 17. I like the specificity and the semantics, but we are going to talk about uh, <laughs> what the U.S. were doing, what Wales did, the overall game. Uh, but I'd like to start with a thank you to U.S. Soccer and to Fox Sports for their really wonderful messages to Daryl. Uh, U.S. Soccer included him in their squad list with the heart on the on the jersey. Uh, that was pretty amazing. But then for Fox to include him as well and, and kind of have a very heartfelt message meant a lot to me. I'm sure meant a lot to TSS listeners. I know Shannon, his wife, and Julie, his mom, were both watching and, and saw that. And I know it meant a lot to them and to his friends at home. So uh, credit to them. Joe, you did not know, I think, that either of these things were going to happen. Were, were you caught off guard? Yeah, I wasn't necessarily caught off guard because I know... I knew that you and Michael Cameron had been talking a little bit about some things going on, but even though I was waiting more or less for something to happen, it still it still hits you right here, right? Yeah. I mean, on a on a very personal level, I'm missing Daryl's voice right now. Like I'm missing hearing him on the Total Soccer Show. I think that's yeah. the worst thing about being on the show with you, Taylor. I love being on the show with you. It's that I don't get to listen to you do the show. You know, I don't get to listen to you and Daryl do the show. Like I can't spend this evening listening to the show that you and I are about to do. I, I could, I guess, but I don't really want to hear myself. You know, I miss <laughs> I that. I, yeah. I miss all that stuff. I miss Daryl's nuanced thoughts on soccer and his really smart, detailed analysis of the men's national team. I miss that stuff. Yeah. And so seeing those tributes and listening to the one on Fox Sports in the pregame, it's great. And it, it really did mean a lot, I know, to to people who are closer and were closer to Daryl than I am or I was. But yeah, it hit me. It really did hit me. 
Yeah, I'm going to uh, try not to get overly emotional because that does not make for the best audio if I'm just sobbing into the mic. But it's like it's uh, when a person who's so big in your life passes away, there's the immediacy of it that really hits you. And I definitely had those like really, really hard moments. Uh, I've, I've talked about a couple of them. Realizing he wasn't going to meet my daughter was a pretty, pretty bad one. I feel like I'm going to make people cry now and I don't mean to. Uh, but like when that subsides like you start to feel a little bit better about stuff. And then you do have these moments of like, like stuff hitting you. And it has been the case that for me, like covering the U S national team, like not being able to text him to be like, what, like, why did they go with legit up top? <laughs> like it's, it, it's definitely, those are the things that you don't quite realize, uh, until you're not doing it anymore. And so that has definitely been for me, uh, a, a strange thing. I'm very appreciative that I can then text Joe instead to ask why are they starting legit up top? Um, and I think, Getting the equivalent of like a shrug emoji, basically, <laughs> which is which is the appropriate response to that. But um, but no, I'm with you, man. It's a uh, it's a strange world to talk about the, the U.S. national team without Daryl here to do it and here to to keep us positive and to be enthusiastic. But I like that we had Ono Dasoe get minutes. Uh, I feel like yeah. that was Greg Berhalter yeah. with a nod to Wolves and to Daryl. Probably not, but that's how I'm choosing to believe it. But. It was nice to see how many people were thinking about Daryl and remembering him today. And uh, again, I appreciate U.S. Soccer for that and Fox Sports, but everybody really who's celebrated Daryl's life and I think was thinking about him during this game. And I'm going to end it there and, and throw it to you, Joe, to uh, to handle all of that. Yeah, no, it's it's hard, right? And it's it's hard. At the same time, it's a privilege in a way to have the opportunity. And I'm speaking for me and yeah. and for you, Taylor, I think a little bit as well. And just for anyone who is talking about the national team or talking about soccer, it's a privilege to have the opportunity to try to live up to the standard and the level that Daryl set for all of us, for you, for me, for anyone who talks about the men's national team. And so with all of those emotions, I'm really thankful and grateful to be able to talk about those things because I know I have that example that's been set for me and for all of us. That is a really high standard, um, but a, a positive and enthusiastic, a detailed and analytical standard for us to really try to hit. And so, yeah, it's it sucks and it's hard and it's weird to be honest. It's weird to be having these conversations with you mm -hmm. again, instead of listening to them. But I, man, I hope we can at least somewhat do it justice. I, I think we can. I think you certainly can. I do sort of wish that you had ended with that, with that with like, so this game sucked, huh? Cause that's definitely <laughs> how he would want us to approach this. This game did not suck, by the way. I want to be very clear about that. This is the type of game where if the United States did manage to kind of poach a goal at the end or they did get another penalty and Juliana scores it and I would celebrate that, like this goes from a, a good result to like this is a great result. We're really, really hyped about this team. I think that they don't get that one goal maybe is a not necessarily even a negative thing. It's just a, a concern. But I think where I am in this result is that like we saw a lot of very good, very exciting, very promising things from this U.S. team. And a reminder, this is a U.S. team that has not played together since, what, February? Uh, a lot of the players on the field have never played together before. So I think to see how good they did look at times and then to see the obvious areas of like, okay, they tinker here, they adjust this, they bring in a person who can actually do that or is going to do that more regularly. And I think we could see a lot of positivity in this game. Uh, where are you, generally speaking, on this result? I'm overall positive about okay. this result as well. I, I think for me, this is the first time or one of the first times. It could be recency bias a little bit. But it's one of the first times that I explicitly recall feeling confident, at least mostly when the U.S. had the ball. Yeah, they don't score a goal in this game, but they looked like guys who wanted the ball and wanted yeah. to play around with it and knew at least some things to do when they had the ball. 
That's super encouraging for me. Watching this game, no, they don't put the, the ball in the back of the net, which is ultimately the most important thing in a soccer game, maybe less so in a friendly. But as an overall point, uh, seeing these guys want to have possession and do some really intricate things with it is encouraging not just for this game, but as an overall overarching look at where the player pool is right now. And that's that's cool and not something that I would have felt as good about or as confident in saying even a day ago or or at least before this game happened. Yeah, I agree with you entirely. I'll add that my, my wife was watching with me. She does not normally, but today she did. And every time there'd be a close-up of a player, I'd be like, oh, that's a teenager. And then like, oh, that's a teenager. And I think at a certain point, she's like, why are they all teenagers? Why is everyone <laughs> so young? I don't like this. Um, and it was the case. This is a super young team, a super inexperienced team. We had a few different debuts. And yet in the end, I think a, a good result against a, a talented Wales team, albeit a Wales team that maybe wasn't quite what they thought what we thought they were going to be or play the way they thought they they would or we thought they would that was a tough one to say um i expected them fully to be in a back three slash back five i thought we would definitely get gareth bale in there i thought we'd definitely get daniel james i think we both talked a little bit about that in our preview for the game and then after we recorded that realizing oh they've got two more games that are meaningful they're not going to play their starters or their key players at all. And that is kind of how it went. But that aside, Joe, were you surprised by what you saw from Wales? Or what did you see from Wales that you think maybe caused the United States some difficulties? We definitely did get some things wrong, Taylor. But let's let's set all those <laughs> things aside. Because you know what? I don't want to talk about that. No, I'm just kidding. Genuinely, though, we did see at least some of the things that you and I previewed. We saw them sit in a compact defensive block, which is what we talked about. We didn't know exactly what that shape would be. But it ended up being a 4-4-1-1 or a 4-4-2 block with that number 10. I think it was Harry Wilson in this game spending a lot of times, a lot of time dealing with Tyler Adams. And so they, they played a solid defensive structure, occasionally pressing, not doing a lot of that. And I think they were maybe a little, not scared, but a little aware of how the U.S. wants to build from the back and then exploit that space in behind or at least in front of the back line on their way to goal. But defensively, they were compact. They were hard to break down. And I know we'll talk about that. But that was the primary thing they did, and that's what we've seen them do when we watched film of previous games. They like to to step out a little bit from their block and and move with individual players. They are at times man-oriented. Other times they'll just shift back and forth as the ball moves. And I think they did those things to their credit, even without a handful of their top, top guys. They did those things really well. I agree with you. I think they also uh, had a lot of pace, uh, certainly with uh, Robbie Matondo. When he would move around, he would cause Anthony Robinson problems, and he'd shift to the other side to cause Sergio Des problems. And I think the pace that we knew they had, their inclination to tack down the channels especially, was on display. And I think that the United States was able to to more or less handle that entirely, I think, is, is a, another positive thing in my mind, that we were able to sort of nullify one aspect of what Wales were trying to do. Uh, but we should also probably then talk about what the United States were trying to do, because we had ideas about how they would line up. We sort of deliberately disagreed on who would start at left back. It was not Tim Ream, uh, but instead Anthony Robinson, which you had you had expected. But then there were some lineup changes slash things we did not get right. Joe, what would you say was the like, the biggest one, the most surprising one to you? I like how you painted that as me getting Anthony Robinson right, when in reality you just let me go first and then deliberately pick Tim Ream, hey, even though we right. both were we were both pretty sure that it would be Anthony Robinson. Anyway, Taylor, you're too gracious. <laughs> it was a different possession shape than at least I expected, and I talked about this a lot on the preview show, that I was thinking it would be more of a, a 3-2-5 in possession with Tyler Adams or whoever that number six was dropping between the center backs. 
it wasn't that in this game. Tyler Adams did not drop it between the center backs. He stayed right in front of them. Mm-hmm. He played in the, the middle of the midfield of a three-man midfield in a 2-3-5, yeah. which is essentially just a fancy way of saying a 4-3-3 with attacking fullbacks, right? I mean, that's what it is, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's, it's the inverted pyramid. Uh, there you go. It's what Jonathan Wilson wrote about. <laughs> it's what he spent about 800 pages getting yeah. to, right? I guess it's the opposite um, of the inverted pyramid. <laughs> Who knows? Anyway. <laughs> but that's what we saw. We saw that possession shape, which is not, again, what I was expecting to see. But when you're playing Tyler Adams at that spot, and maybe we should have anticipated this, it makes sense, doesn't mm-hmm. it? It makes sense to not have him drop between those center backs and spray passes. That's not his game. We saw him in the first few minutes mishit that Berhalter diagonal from the number six spot. And I remembered in that moment, okay, here are some of the offensive limitations of playing Tyler Adams at the six. So instead, he stayed he stayed in front of those two center backs. And, and basically, his job was play simple passes, play quick passes, and then sweep everything defensively. And I think that intersection point between his offensive work and his defensive work largely paid off really well for the United States. Were you as surprised as I was by Weston McKinney and uh, Yunus Musa? Number one, we did not expect Yunus Musa to start either. He does. He starts uh, in like the cent- center midfield, but then routinely was out on the right. Weston McKinney routinely out on the left. They swapped a couple different times, but for the most part, I felt like the center midfielders going wide in possession was not quite something I expected. What about you? I wasn't ready for that either, but but if we unpeel the the tactics to get to the reasoning behind why Berhalter would do that, it makes sense, right? You want you want your fullbacks high. That's a pillar of what Berhalter was trying to do in this two three five. The outside of the five, the front five, were the fullbacks for I don't seventy five eighty five percent of this game. It was Anthony Robinson going high and wide on the left, and Sergio Dest going high wide on the right, and then dribbling at anyone in his path over and over and over again. It was those two guys moving high, and in a natural way to do that, at least on the ball side, let's say it's on the left side. Weston McKinney spent a lot of time as that left-sided central midfielder. If you move him wide, and if you allow him to shift wide just outside and a little higher of John Brooks on that left center back spot, in that in that left center back spot, if you move him wider and just above the center back, that is a natural pathway for Robinson to move forward mm-hmm. while keeping the offensive spacing. And so I wasn't anticipating that, and maybe we've seen it a little bit in the past under Berhalter, but it wasn't something that I was ready for. But it makes sense, and I think it was a good tactical decision or a good instruction to those central midfielders to allow offensive spacing to be maintained on the wings. Yeah, and this is this is kind of what I was saying in the beginning of the show, that like, I think there were times when McKinney w- would go wide, Robinson would overlap, Brooks would have the ball and be looking to play to one of them, but both of them are sort of occupying the same space, and so then one defender sort of nullifies them entirely, and a couple of different times in the first half, you would see that, Brooks would shape, and then he'd cut back and play it back to Miazgar, he'd play it to Tyler Adams, and I say that not to say that, like, well, therefore the system doesn't work, and we should just scrap it entirely, it's just that I think it's about the patterns and the rotations and sort of getting familiar with each other that I think in the future that sort of interchange is more automatic or as soon as McKinney goes wide and Robinson uh, overlaps, then maybe it's whomever is playing up top or whoever is like the left winger. So on today, uh, today it was Conrad De La Fuente. Maybe in the future it's De La Fuente dropping in to the area that Weston McKinney has vacated. And now you can play to him. And then if somebody steps to him, now somebody's open out wide. And so I think that it, it, sort of stifled the United States' creativity at times, but simultaneously I think that's a product of 
growing into the system a little bit. So I don't have as much of an issue there. I do think the U.S. struggled a little bit to create. Uh, they don't have many touches in the box. They certainly don't have many goal-scoring opportunities. Do you have thoughts on what maybe that was holding them back or why they weren't as able to create so effectively, so consistently? I think there's a lot that goes into that question and a yeah. lot that goes into this general talking point. And I know we'll go back and forth on this. So I'm, I'm taking almost a deep breath here before I spew out some thoughts. Okay. That's good. I'm ready. Good. You, I you think got the deep breath done? Got the deep breath. In. Okay. Thank cool. you for, good, good, thank good. you for asking. So the United States came out with a lineup that had a lot of guys who wanted the ball at their feet. They came out in a very, I tweeted this before the game. I think it, that feels like a really long time ago, but I'm pretty sure I did. It was a very, Vicente del Bosque, 2008 to 2012 Spain lineup in that there were lots of, of central midfielders and just a lot of players on the field who liked to touch the ball. It was Sebastian Legette playing as that, that number nine. It was Gio Reyna in the right wing who, who always drifted inside and pretty much had license to do whatever he wanted. It was Conrad de la Fuente who, while not a central midfielder, is a guy who loves to dribble, mm -hmm. like Sergino Dest, his Barcelona teammate. Dest was at right back moving forward, and he's almost a black hole at times when he has the ball. Weston McKenney and, and Musa as well in the midfield. You have all those guys that I just named who want touches on the ball. And when you have so many players who want that offensive priority, it can gum up the works a little mm -hmm. bit. And I don't know. Did you notice that, Taylor? Did you notice the congestion sometimes when the U.S. had possession? What I think I noticed that speaks to what you're talking about is the number of times it seemed like we would have 15 to 20 to 30 seconds of possession and then somebody would try to take somebody on 1v1. And I think, mm -hmm. to your point, I think it was a lot of people wanting the ball, wanting to get those touches, but to some extent individual effort, uh, like supplementing like a series of passing combinations that bypasses what Wales were doing. So I, I think that was part of it for me, that there was a lot of individual take-ons, individual moments, some of which worked, some of which did not. I think Gio Reyna especially was trying to kind of try stuff, take people on, make something happen. I do think I have a reason for why that was the case, um, if you'd like to hear it, or we can talk about other things instead. No, no, please. That's a tease. you gotta, you got to <laughs> fill us in. So I sent you uh, a screen grab of this, uh, and I will try to remember to post it uh, somewhere on social media at some point. But uh, in the first half, there's a moment when I think you can see what the United States is trying to do. Uh, they they do they win the ball back after like a long clear from Wales. They build out in that sort of eventual two three five shape you've talked about already. Um, a, a key thing I think in what they were trying to do is Weston McKinney. Let's say he's kind of holding that left center midfield spot. I noticed that the United States would just sort of pass and pass and pass on the right side around midfield. And as soon as, as Wales sort of shifted over, uh, and it leaves John Brooks open on the, on the far side, the ball comes around to him. And as that ball is being played, Weston McKinney turns and runs forward. And I thought like, huh, that's interesting. He's running away from the ball, except he takes the defender with him. John Brooks's first touch was 15 yards into the space that Weston McKinney vacates. And I think, that right there was like the first step for me of like, okay, they're not trying to rush this. They're not trying to get down the wings or counterattack. Certainly if they get that opportunity, they would. But in terms of their buildup, they're not trying to rush it. They want to play slowly. And it to the extent that it's contingent upon one of the center backs striding forward. And I think initiating 
uh, a defensive play from Wales. So somebody has to step to Brooks, that leaves somebody else open. And what this sequence eventually leads to is, I, th- I believe it's Brooks, pings the ball into Sebastian Legette, who has dropped in and has made himself available. That's obviously what he's trying to do. He's moving off the line. He's opening up space. He's trying to find opportunities to get on the ball, to turn, go at the defense, or play in one of his teammates. And this is the key thing, is that he... Turns really well under pressure. He turns away from where the ball has come. And uh, in the in the screen grab I sent you, it's pretty open for Serginho Dest in my mind. Dest is making a run. There's a gap that's now been created. And Legit looks like he's about to play it into it. And then he drops it square to Weston McKinney. And again, I think this is not a, a defect in Legette's game. I think he can play that ball. I think what the United States, number one, did not want to do was concede possession when those fullbacks are committed forward. And so in that moment, Dest might have been played in, but just as risky is that ball being cut out, played into the channel, and now Matondo's away, and the United States are really caught on the counter. So I think they were content to not... Like sacrifice, like basically they sacrificed getting those sort of quick break moments, balls in behind, uh, so that they then didn't leave themselves vulnerable to counterattack. Hey, folks, this is Taylor interrupting. We will get back to myself and Mr. Joe Lowry discussing all things U.S. men's national team in that nil-nil draw with Wales. But first, a word from Paul Tenorio and today's sponsor. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card there weren't a lot of those home run passes, right? No. There weren't a lot of those, I'm going to hit this ball, not a hit and hope moment, but a, a risky passing moment. There weren't a lot of those throughout these 90 minutes. And I, when I was watching the game, I was a little frustrated at times because I hadn't really thought about what happens when you lose that ball. Yeah. When you don't hit that home run pass properly, you don't hit the home run every time. That's not how baseball works, and that's not how soccer works either. If you mess that play up or if it doesn't come off, you have two giant gaps, or, or at least one on the ball side, of where your fullback just raced up the field. If if Serginho Dest gets on the end of that, or if he doesn't get on the end of that, more more importantly, and there's that giant gap that you just talked yep. about. There's that issue. Then you're relying on Matt Miazga to slide over and cover. Tyler Adams did a good job defensively in this game, but that's a lot of ground that you're asking your your defensive three at that point, essentially, of Brooks, Miazga, and Adams to deal with. And Matt Miazga, for, for one, I don't think was necessarily up to that task in this game. As good, of his, as, good as his on-ball work was, and I, I really like that part of his game, he was beaten defensively at times, as was John Brooks, maybe not as extremely. But yeah, that's a huge risk. That's a huge issue. And playing safer negates some of those problems, especially when Wales had the pace. You mentioned Rabi Matondo. When they have that, that quality to move forward quickly in transition, you gotta, you got to be careful about that. Yeah, and I think uh, what was really useful for me was I switched over, uh, as we are want to do, we watched the, the game, then we talked for a little bit, then we rewatched the game. I rewatched on uh, TUDNA where they did not have the pumped-in crowd noise, and Weston McKinney was repeatedly, throughout that first half especially, yelling at everybody to slow down and keep the ball. It Usually his volume increased when somebody had just tried something and lost it. There's a moment near the end of the first half, I think it's like 42-30, if people want to go watch, when um, 
basically Anthony Robinson gets the ball, strides forward, gets around his defender, and then realizes there's space in front of him, drives into it, but takes one heavy touch too many, gets the ball cut out, uh, and then Wales counterattack right down that side. Now there is a ton of space. I think they end up trying to play it over the top and, and miss that. I think it goes all the way back to Zach Steffen. And McKinney turns and just screams at everybody, like, slow it down. And I think that, again, shows me what they were trying to do, which is do not get caught on those fast break moments. Don't get over eager and start to get frustrated and then try things when we shouldn't be trying things. Trust the process a little bit as I think what the idea would be. And so though it doesn't lead to goals or the most exciting attacking play, I think if we remember our expectations of this being a really young team who didn't have much time together, didn't have much training together and don't have historically much time together, a lot of debuts and young players in here, I think that makes sense that you're not going to try to run and gun against a team who are going to put nine behind the ball and defend and counter. You're going to like pick your pick your moments, pick your passes, try to find those opportunities and then build on it from there. So I'm still sad we didn't get a goal, but I'm also very happy that we didn't concede one. Let's put it that way. And I'm I'm with you there, Taylor. I'm having a hard time getting bent out of shape about almost any part of this game, given that the the main theme and the main takeaway should be that we got to see a whole bunch of really promising young players yep. play in this match. right? That should be the... Well, I'm not going to tell you how to think about this game, <laughs> listeners. But I think for me, and probably for you, that is the main overarching theme. And I know we're going to talk about some of those guys later on. That said, I do think that if we, if we both agree that when, you, when you're in the attack, you have to be measured with your approach. And you can't always hit those home run passes. Then the question that needs to be asked is... How do you make your your at least slightly safer attacking play mm-hmm. more effective, right? Yeah. Because we saw the U.S. play safe sometimes, play a lot of short combination passes. That's something that Berhalter wants his team to do, and we saw them do that. But they didn't create a bunch of chances. They, ha- they had, I think, one shot on target from this entire game. So then I think you and I, Taylor, need to sort of dig into why or, or how can they possess the ball more effectively? What was missing from this lineup, from this tactically from this game to what was missing to elicit more chances in the attack. Sure. I I have a, I think I have a couple answers actually. I think the first one would be that I did see chances being created from out wide, usually via overloads or very smart combinations. The one that stands out, there's a couple different times in the first half, especially in which I think Serginio Dest gets down the right side. It's one of the the moments in which uh, Weston McKinney is on that right side. And the two of them would link up well. I think they... So again, they trusted the process. They slowed it down. And what would happen is either McKinney would hold it up, pull a Welsh defender in, and then play in Serginio Dest, who'd get a low cross, or vice versa. The problem I then noticed was that you already had sometimes two, sometimes three, sometimes four Americans in and around the box, but they had sort of already arrived. And I think we're maybe waiting for, again, that slow buildup or slow passes, or maybe just a ball crossed in. Didn't see a ton of crossing in this game, though. But what that means... Uh, and you'll see this like drawn up on match of the day when they want to point out that like an attacker needs to be more aggressive is that when, say, Dest plays in McKinney and McKinney gets to the end line and crosses that ball low and towards this like towards the top of the six yard box, even when it wasn't cut out by, cut out by a Welsh defender, it was usually either eventually intercepted by the goalkeeper or sometimes cleared by the center back. 
which means that it's not being attacked. And I think a lot of times the U.S. attackers were were a little bit hesitant to commit to those runs to try to get on at the near post or to cause disruption. And I think a lot of that has to do with youth and inexperience. I think that if you're playing the Jet, who I don't think of as a number nine, as a number nine, or Conrad De La Fuente, and you're trying to kind of ask him to do a little bit more direct running, which I don't think is necessarily a thing he wants to do. I don't think you saw some of that like killer instinct almost. And I think if you get some more runs and some more numbers in the box and maybe that's where you gamble, that's where you do try to take a little bit of risk. I think that I'm definitely okay with. So that's my explanation number one. But for fear of talking for 12 more minutes, (laughs) uh, I will throw it back to you to see if you have a response to that or if you have uh, explanations of your own. Well, I'll drag that train of thought a little farther along. I think I think you're right. And I noticed that same idea of a lack of of attacking the ball in the box. And there's a sequence from from the U.S. where they build up at the start of the second half. And I think it's in the 49th minute, 50th minute, something like that, where Matt Miazga plays a great line breaking ball forward. He finds Weston McKinney on the run. McKinney then plays it out wide to Dest, who crosses the ball low. And, it, and Sebastian Legette can't catch it, right? He can't, he can't quite catch up to the ball in the box. And it gets dealt with by Wales. And I think... That is somewhat emblematic of of the United States attack, but also at the same time, I think it has a little bit to do with personnel. I don't want to put it all on the players, but yeah. Sebastian Legette, I think his movement was good in the box, to be honest with you. I think his movement was good, but he maybe lacked that initial burst of speed. He's not a he's not an aggressive number nine. That's not his game. He's a he's a drop in central attacking midfielder or a number eight who likes to to play the ball forward and create things. He's not a a run into the box and, and get on the end of a cross like that kind of player. I think the same thing goes for Gio Reyna. The same thing goes for Conrad De La Fuente. I mean, the, the attacking players that Greg Berhalter had in the lineup are, are droppers. They're not line breakers. Yeah, they're not, they're not players point. who are, who are going to extend in beyond and do things in the box. And sometimes that's okay because sometimes really the way the, the other team is set up, you just need players who can advance the ball. You need to get in the final third, and at that point, maybe you have the space and the time to, to break in there. In this game, I'm not sure that was the, the real need for the U.S. They had no issue really advancing the ball, and a lot of that had to do with Sebastian Legette and his ability to create an overload in midfield, dropping in as that false nine. But then you deal with a little bit of difficulty when you get forward because no one really is hyper-comfortable doing things in the box. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I think... Two things there. First one, to your point, when you think about the shots that were taken, like I I don't remember as many as I do outside the box from Weston McKinney and Tyler Adams. And they seem to be the ones who are like, all right, fine. Like late arriving run, I'll have a go. Tyler Adams, like, sure. I've scored from distance for RB Leipzig. Why not try it here? Whereas I think there's the one that's been doing the rounds of, I think the United States win the ball back. They counterattack. Gio Reyna drives towards the middle of the field. I would argue he has Sebastian, uh, he has Legette wide open out wide. He does. And chooses yeah. to kind of cut inside. And that gets chalked off as like, oh, he's being a ball hog. He's being a little bit of a dribbler. To some extent, that might be the case. But I would just say, to me, it's more of an example of maybe he's used to Holland making those runs and just knowing he's <laughs> going to score no matter what. But I think it's also him. Like, I've had this before. Like, you just want to make sure that you're taking a shooting opportunity when it's on and you're not rushing it. And to some extent, I think he was like, I'm going to pull somebody in, then I'll play that ball. Or they won't step to me, and that will create space for me to have that shot. But I think he gets caught a little bit in that moment of indecision of, I'm going to go no matter what, or I'm laying the ball off no matter what. 
and he doesn't really do either. And I think the United States didn't have as many of those, like, I know exactly what I'm doing and this is the decision I've made. To your point about Legette dropping in, I felt like routinely he would do that and then the space that he would open up wouldn't be occupied by anybody. You'd have those wide players staying wide. You'd have – or maybe they would drift inside, but they would sort of still be standing at the top of the box as he drops in. You have your fullbacks committed forward. You have the central midfielders that we've already talked about kind of pulling wide as well. So when Legette would get that ball, if he could turn, which was not always the case, I think he's looking at a bunch of space ahead of him occupied by Welsh defenders with – a teammate on his left, a teammate on his right, but they too are marked. And I think that's where we started to see the lack of familiarity with the system, that we didn't then have the next sort of cycle, the next process of when he turns, you go here, this person overlaps, this person pulls that defender out, this person runs into that space, and now he should have two and three options. I think that's how the system evolves. That's why I don't have as many issues with it here. But I think that is probably also to blame for why the U.S. wasn't able to create as much. I want to talk about Manchester City, Taylor. Is that all right? Is of that all right course. with you? Of course. Okay. I mean, it's not my favorite team, but sure. Well. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to run that by the Manchester United fan. So the reason I why that. I want to talk about Manchester City for just a second sure. is if you think about how Pep Guardiola has that team attack. And and to be clear, this is not a direct correlation between Pep Guardiola and Greg Berhalter, <laughs> although I think they're both balding. So there is something there. There you go. But the idea that I'm having is when you think about Manchester City, the the biggest attacking combination or the biggest, most repeated sequence that I think of when I think of Manchester City is they'll get the ball wide or, or maybe in the half space. And then they'll have a player run into the box, but in that outer channel of the box on either side of the goal, they'll have a runner run into that space and get on the ball. So you have someone breaking through the back line, getting in beyond the opposing back line, getting the ball in that space, deep in the box, and then cutting it back. They cut the ball back from that spot almost near the end line. Yeah. And they score goals from that. Or at the very least, they score chances. I mean, they, they create chances, rather. It's that idea of, of the line-breaking run. You need that. You need that, when, especially when Sebastian Legette is your nine, and you can't rely on your number nine to make those Holland runs or those Mbappe runs that break beyond the back line and get the ball in space. You can't rely on that when you have Sebastian Legette or, or Jesus Ferreira that we saw in February playing that that number nine spot. Mm-hmm. It's a different responsibility. It's a different set of responsibilities from that number nine. So you have to compensate. Let's say the U.S. moves the ball wide. Maybe what they should have done, or at least could have done, is you move the ball wide on the on the left side to Anthony Robinson, and then you have Gio Reyna right as that ball is going out to Robinson, darting towards that zone of the box, that that outer channel of the box, trying to get almost to the end line. Anthony Robinson then plays on the ball. Gio Reyna gets on the ball in behind the back line and cuts it back to a Sebastian Legette. Or maybe at that point, it's to Weston McKinney making that deep run out of midfield. We didn't see that happen, right? We didn't see the U.S. try to get into those spaces. It was a little bit stagnant. It was Legette dropping in, and that worked well. I think he did a really good job at exactly what Berhalter wanted him to do. But the pieces around him, whether that's because they weren't the right pieces or because they weren't doing their job, or, or at least the job that they needed to do, based on how Wales was defending, that was the disconnect for me. Legette doing his job, but but the rest of the players around him missing those those darting runs in behind the back line into that Manchester City zone mm-hmm. to then cut the ball back and create chances. I want to go back to something you said, I think, before we started recording, maybe after the game just ended, uh, when we were sort of doing our quick breakdown before going to the rewatch, you mentioned that like you think this is a thing that we will get from the U.S. regardless of who's there. I don't want to like 
like say the wrong thing. So please jump in if you disagree with my summation of what you said. <laughs> but I believe your argument was that, like if Josie Altador were at, in this game fully fit, ready to go, he's probably doing a similar thing to Sebastian Legette. Do you think that is a thing that we'll continue to see from Burhalter as he wants that to just be, not just be, but wanted to be a mobile number nine who can drop in, who can link up play, who can create space, but ideally then turn and get on the end of those kind of squared balls to make sure he scores as well? Like we did with our left back uh, conundrum on mm-hmm. our preview show with Tim Ream versus Anthony Robinson, I think there's two paths okay. that the number nine spot can take depending on who's playing there. If it's a Sebastian Legette, which is just weird, right? That was really unexpected, and I think yeah. it worked fine. It genuinely worked fine. I'll be honest. If, I'll be honest and transparent about this one. When I saw Stu Holden's lineup, I like laughed. I was like, "Yeah, right." Like we all know it's going to be Legette in the middle. It's going to be Yunus Musa out wide. It's probably going to be Gio Reyna. Like up top central, like, and then doing that sort of like false nine dropping in role that we know he can kind of do as like the number 10 for Dortmund. That was what I expected. So, yes, I was then very surprised when it was actually Legette leading the line. I also thought that, Taylor. I was definitely <laughs> with you on that. Um, I wasn't planning on admitting that, but I felt bad leaving you out to dry. I was like, silly so. Stu. You know more than this. <laughs> and then I was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I guess Stu Holden does know what he's talking about. Well, at least, well, at least some of the time. So I'm, I'm kidding, Stu. You're great. Um, so thinking about this number nine spot, there's the Sebastian Legette type, which I don't really want to call that because I don't think he's likely to do this job ever again. But there's that false nine type, which is the category that I would say Josie Altador falls under, that Jesus Ferreira falls under, and at least maybe half of Josh Sargent falls under. And I'll go ahead and put the other half of Sargent in the Jossi Zardes mold, where where they're more stretchers, right? They're, they're going to try to break that line and run in behind or at least be active or hyperactive in the box in that, in that important space for the number nine to occupy in a traditional sense. So just thinking about those two options, and Berhalter has, not in as many words, he's much more concise and, and clever than I am in describing these things, but he's, he's talked about these two paths before. He's talked about the, the false nine versus the, the high nine, almost. And I think it depends on which player it's going to be. If, if it's the high nine, the wingers will drop in more, and it'll be the nine's job to stretch the back line. And if it's the, the false nine, like it was against Wales, it'll be the winger's job or it should be the winger's job or someone's job to break the back line. And and the reason why, when we were having that conversation earlier, Taylor, that I think this is something, this this false nine is something we're going to see a lot is because the number one striker in the national team pool right now, if he can get healthy, is Josie Altidore. He is the guy who we're going to see in a fully fit first, you know, first roster, first full strength group of players that's Josie Zard. Uh, that's uh, Josie Altador, rather. We're going to see those types of players, as opposed to Zardes, who we probably won't see as often. Um, a quick like question for you, Joe, and I will own the fact that I have not watched nearly as much Major League Soccer as I probably should have. I plan to rectify that with the playoffs coming. But I think about like Josie Altador doing that role, and the one that always comes to mind is like the uh, the Toronto FC team with him and Sebastian Giovinco. When you would assume that it would be like, oh, it's Giovinco who drops in, Josie Altador's the big guy who leads the line and is kind of the target forward, and it was really the opposite. It's Josie who would drop in, be mobile, Giovinco would be the one to lead the line, make those runs in behind, cause problems for the defenses. Josie's winning the headers, he's flicking it on, he's holding it up and combining with the midfield. From what you've seen of him this season, can he still do that? Do you think he still has that mobility and that range and that speed? Or do you think he will sort of, sort of evolve into a more classic target, number nine, big man up top? I think the evolution is coming, mm-hmm. but Altidore's primary tendency from what I've noticed of his game is still to be that connector okay. piece, or at least cool. to get a touch on the ball. 
But how long that stays, actually, I hadn't thought about, and I don't know the answer to that. That's a really interesting point. All right. Well, then we will keep an eye on that one. But I think we've we've sort of, in a good way, gone into the weeds a little bit about some of the like reasons why the U.S. might not have been as effective in the attack. But I then want to sort of bring us back to the idea that this is a very experimental team. Uh, I didn't think some of these guys would get any minutes, uh, certainly not start. So I do want to take some time to talk about some of the things we, we especially enjoyed from this game. We've talked about the tactics. We've talked about what we got wrong, a little bit about what we got right. Um, but let's talk about some things that made us both very happy. And I'm going to assume a name that is on both of our lists for that one would be Yunus Musa. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Where to even begin? I saw we both tweeted about him mid-game. Yeah. I think you said, is he president yet or should he be president or can we elect him president? I said I, president? I don't want to be uh, hyperbolic or overly emotional, but Yunus Musa for president. Ah, yes. Yeah. That's perfect. And I, I agree with you. I think let's be hyperbolic and overly emotional. Sure. But also accurate because he was so good in yeah, this game, Taylor. On both sides of the ball, I thought he was excellent. I genuinely would not be surprised like, I know I'm, I'm buying, maybe I'm buying into the hype a little bit. It's one performance, you know, slow it. We'll see what happens. But this midfield made a lot of sense to me. Tyler Adams, I, I think Michael Bradley might be in some trouble. <laughs> um, or maybe already was. But Tyler Adams, the amount of ground he covered, the fact that he could sprint back to make a, a, like a, a very important tackle, but step out to win a loose ball, but then keep the ball moving. I think he did so much of what we need that number six to be that I thought he was immense. We already talked about Weston McKinney. I thought he had a great game. But Eunice Musa coming in and like looking like he's been there for years. Uh, I think the way he would keep it simple when he needed to, but then I think the one that maybe solidified it for you was when he dropped in, received the ball off the center back, like fainted one way, turned to the other one and got fouled. But the idea of trying something and I think would have pulled it off had he have not, had he have not been fouled. It wasn't fortunate. It wasn't like he got lucky. It was him very quickly reading the situation, knowing the defenders committed on the wrong side, knowing you can turn and open up space and drawing the foul because that defender realizes like, if I don't pull this player down, even if it's 30 yards from their own goal, there's a decent chance this could end up in the back of our goal. So I thought that sort of movement and awareness and creativity and skill was not something I necessarily expected right away. And I guess we'll now be expecting for every single game from here on out. An awful lot more still to come on today's episode, but first a word from today's sponsor, Manscaped, who would like you to brace yourself because winter is coming. This is true, even if not the Game of Thrones sense, because with winter setting in combined with the ongoing pandemic, combined with everybody working from home, I feel like America's kind of smelly right now. Just a shot in the dark. I feel like we're all working from home. We're pretty much just wearing sweatpants and the stuff we wore before. We're changing, like, the top half to appear good on the Zoom. But aside from that, I'm slightly worried about America's cleanliness. And I'm going to assume that uh, Manscaped is as well, because they really do have options for lots of different needs. Obviously, they have things like the Lawnmower 3.0, which is a trimmer that is waterproof with advanced skin-safe technology to reduce nicks and cuts. And even has a light to help you with your close shave when there's no power, when the lights are off. You're still good to go. I wouldn't recommend it, but you could. They've got the Weed Whacker, which is an ear and nose hair trimmer. They've even got the Foot Duster, which is a foot deodorant made to fight odors of the dirtiest feet. And if you've been working from home, wearing the same pair of shoes, not going outside, you might have some stinky feet. But Manscaped can cover that as well. 
And on top of everything else, they've even thrown in the Shed travel bag to carry your goods and the Manscaped anti-chafing boxer brief to hold the entire package together. You can get 20% off and free shipping with the code TSS20 at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped.com using the promo code TSS20. Be sure to join the Manscaped movement. These products are snow joke. Woo, a Game of Thrones pun to end that ad read. Thank you very much to Manscaped for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Thank you very much to Credible for sponsoring today's episode. Credible.com is an online marketplace that allows borrowers with student loan debt to see refinancing rates across a variety of lenders. If you've got student loan debt, you could benefit from their services. You can refinance your student loans, which means you could get a lower rate, which saves you on interest. It lowers your monthly payment, means more money in your pocket. That's always good. You can get debt-free faster. You can consolidate all your student loan bills into one place, which really does bring peace of mind. If you're paying a bunch of different people a bunch of different amounts, you kind of want it centralized and into one sum that makes sense. It gives you that peace of mind. Some benefits of using Credible to refinance your student loan so that you see actual pre-qualified rates for multiple lenders, whereas with some online marketplaces, you'll get ranges of rates or ballpark estimates, and it only takes a couple of minutes to check rates, and checking rates does not, emphasizing, impact your credit. They're so confident that they have the best rates, they'll give you $200 if you close a loan with a better rate elsewhere. They will never sell your data, so you don't receive spam and phone calls from dozens of lenders. Please visit Credible.com slash T-S-S, that's C-R-E-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash T-S-S, and when you refinance your student loans via Credible, they will give you a $200 gift card. Fill in a few pieces of info to check what rates you are eligible for, and that's it. Again, that is Credible.com slash T-S-S, refinance your student loans and start saving. Message from Credible Operations, Inc., not available in all states, terms and conditions apply. Visit Credible.com slash T-S-S for details. Thank you very much to Credible for sponsoring this episode. Now back to myself and Joe Lowry. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think... 
I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. It, it is just one game, and I know we both know that. It's hard mm-hmm. to to temper expectations from now on, but Yunus Musa is 17 years old. Yeah. What? He, <laughs> he looked like, I mean, Gio Reyna, also yeah. 17 years old when this game is played. Um, and, and Reyna didn't nearly have the, the quality of performance that Musa had, but. Can focusing, I just clarify, does he have like a birthday tomorrow? I, I think it's soon. I think that's what I heard on the broadcast, okay. which is why I said that in a really awkward way. Just <laughs> well, so that I couldn't hearing, be wrong. Well, I hear, I, I saw the report today that he, on his 18th birthday, will be signing a new long-term uh, yeah. deal with Dortmund. But when you said that, I was like, did, did he, like, did he turn 18 like an hour after kickoff or something? But now I'm with you. Now <laughs> I understand. I got you. When you look at the, the youth of these guys, especially Yunus Musa in this game, his, his press resistance. That's one of the, the terms that I used to describe him. And you talked about it. So I don't need to really go into any more detail on that. But he's, he's Darlington Nagby level comfortable when he has the ball or, or when the ball is coming to him. He is not afraid of tight spaces. He's not afraid of, of being caught on the ball because most of the time, at least in this game, he wasn't caught on the ball. He yeah. had that great timing of when to release the pass, when to drive forward between the lines. And then when he is on the ball and dribbling, he reminds me of Weston McKinney in that he, he glides with the mm-hmm. ball. He just sort of effortlessly drifts forward at a speed where I know if I was running right next to him, I wouldn't even be keeping up. And he has the ball to keep track of, and I don't. <laughs> he, is, he is a, in this game, he was a phenomenal offensive contributor in his passing, in his, his movement and ability to break the U.S. out of pressure. And then defensively, I was mm-hmm. so impressed with his speed off the ball and his ability to cover ground. You and I talked about in our preview show, Taylor, the importance in this 4-3-3 slash 4-4-2 diamond press that the U.S. use now. And they, they did do that again in this game after we saw them use it against Costa Rica for more or less the first time. We talked about the importance of those three central midfielders covering ground. And we knew Tyler Adams could do it. We knew Weston McKenney could do it. I, I hadn't seen enough of Yunus Musa off the ball to know whether or not he could do it. Spoiler alert, he can. Yeah, he he can. covers ground in a crazy way. There's a, there's a sequence in the 51st minute. This is just, uh, just basically a minute after he does something wonderful on the ball. One minute later, the ball is coming lobbed pass out to his side. He's playing as the right central midfielder. And he covers plenty of ground to get over there and cause issues for Wales in their buildup. Yeah, he, he could does. do everything, Taylor. And I, yeah, I liked it. I just pulled my my, my minute by minute notes, and I have uh, Moose with a great run uh, takes people on and then rides challenges. Yeah, no, he uh, he did very well. He did very well in this one. And I think there were moments when you could see Wales starting to deal with him by knocking him around and trying to be physical. And anytime you see that sort of sustained focus on going at one player, you can rest assured that that player is causing the defense problems. So I think I think we'll continue to see him in the center midfield for the United States. Obviously, there's other players who are available, but he has justified the inclusion in this squad, certainly, and I would say in future squads as well. Uh, who else, Joe, did you uh, find yourself particularly happy about after the game? 
I enjoyed watching, I know we addressed it already a little bit, but one specific part of Weston McKinney's game, if you'll sure. allow me, mm-hmm. Taylor, his, his ability to drive forward with the ball or mm-hmm. to receive the ball on the run really yep. impressed me in this game. He was, I wrote this in my notes, he is the offensive catalyst, which is not something that I expected given that Gio Reyna was on the field, given that Sergino Dest and Conrad De La Fuente were on the field. I sort of assumed that McKenney would be the more workmanlike player in the midfield, occasionally moving forward into the attack. Instead, he was the guy on the ball. He was creating things. In the in the first few minutes of the game, the U.S. had set the tone early. They were moving the ball very uh, very smoothly. They were moving it slowly at the same time. And McKenney was the guy who did try, not a home run pass, but something. Mm-hmm. He, he switched the ball from the left side of the field where he was over to, I believe it was Serginho Dest on the right side for him to isolate, which I think is a great attacking strategy most of the time. McKenney was the one trying to make his mark on this game, and and I thought he did that really well. Was that the sequence when he kind of plays himself out of pressure along the touchline? I can't remember. I think they might have been separate moments, which is even more yeah. impressive. Yeah. If I told you that like all this team had worked on in training was like turning under pressure with the ball coming at you and going the opposite way, would you be surprised? Because Oh, I, I believe think, it. I believe that. I was so many times I thought like, okay, this is going to be a square ball. This is going to be a ball backwards. And instead a player w- would, would make that turn and pull it off and, and play on the half turn, play under pressure and not be so overwhelmed. I thought the U.S. for the most part, until maybe they got into the attacking third, did a really good job of handling the pressure that Wales would throw at them. I thought John Brooks as well did the same thing. But I'm with you that Weston McKinney... I think he almost like has that club in his bag and we forget until maybe the defense forgets as well. And then they do not forget anymore when he strides past them confidently and plays a long ball. So I I liked uh, what I saw from Weston McKinney as well. But the other big one for me, the big standout performer in this one was Serginho Dest, who I thought looked uh Awesome. <laughs> it's like <laughs> my very basic, but the best word I can come up with because he did a lot in this game on both sides of the ball. Two specific things I would, I would focus on is that he, when he would get forward and be that sort of wide attacker in that two, three, five, you could see him. If you go back and watch, he is constantly calling for the ball. He wants that ball. He wants to take people on. He wants to create problems. But that doesn't mean that he is getting the ball and going straight to goal every single time, head down. There are certainly some uh, players who play head down. I wouldn't put him in that category all the time, sometimes. But in this game, I thought he made smart choices of when to try that, when to pass, when to try little moments of skill. But I have long had concerns about him in his 1v1 defense. I think he gets beat once this time in this game. And that's mostly when he's in transition trying to put out a fire. But the other stuff I saw, which made me much happier, that there was a moment in, I think, the 31st minute? Yeah, 31st minute, Wales have the ball on their right side. Uh, The U.S. kind of drift over. They crowd that side of the field. They have numbers in the middle, but they're trying to make sure Wales basically cough cough up the ball, and then you can counterattack. What Wales do instead is hit a inch perfect pass over like basically switching to the opposite side of the field and it's a 2v1 situation for Serginho Dest who now has the um the left I think it was Lawrence gets the ball and has more running through and so it's a 2v1 I think there 
I think a year ago or maybe like six months ago, Serginho Dest charges out there and tries to make that play immediately. He tries to extinguish things before they happen. Maybe he does, but maybe he overcommits and and, and uh, concedes a foul. Maybe he dives in and gets beat, and now it's 2v0. What he does this time is stay central, shape up to the, to the defender, to the uh, man on the ball again. I think it's Lawrence, but then tracks the runner as well. But because of the angle now, Lawrence has to dribble inside, has to come towards the goal, and basically has to kill his angle. Uh, Moore doesn't really move from when he makes his initial run. And now Serginho Dest effectively shuts down a 2v1. I think they end up sort of cutting the ball inside. It gets cut out. The United States reestablish possession. But that moment of sort of presence under fire uh, is... It's not even necessarily a thing that I don't think he he 100% would have done. But seeing him do it here, it felt like, okay, he can do both sides. Like, he can be smart in defense and make good plays and put out, like, potentially big, big fires, but then also cause some issues of his own on the other side of the field. I love that you brought in the defensive side of things because I struggled to look past anything other than him dancing, essentially, with the ball <laughs> on the right side of the field because yeah. he did that so well yep. and uh, and was very difficult to stop when he had the ball at his feet, maybe dribbling a little bit too much, but I was entertained, so I'm not complaining, Sergio Dest. Uh, uh, yeah. that, was, that was fun to watch, but I like that you brought the defensive focus because we've seen him evolve, that, that part of his game evolve, I think, over the last year. We've seen it with, with Ajax and him develop and get more first-team minutes there. Now with Barcelona, he can't be a consistent defensive liability. And it's early on in his Barcelona career. But we did see a relatively solid defensive performance from him. He was measured in his approach. He was largely largely solid at that spot. And I think that's an encouraging sign for the U.S. when that was pretty much the only or at least the biggest question mark about his game overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I also think... Uh, when he does have those moments of skill, it's like this weird, like, like circle of energy that he pulls people into. Cause Weston McKinney would be very, like, one and two touch pass. And then he would come inside of Serginho Dest's orbit and suddenly he would do, like, a double step over and then a back heel. Like, I, I like that Serginho Dest seems to bring that out of his teammates, uh, and seems to bring it out at the right moments. It's not trying stuff. 10 yards from your own goal and then being punished for it. At least not usually. Uh, so there's so no, just to, to, interject, but, to interject there, Taylor, there's no term that I have ever heard in the English language that I like more than the Serginho Dest circle of energy. Uh, that is <laughs> that is just incredible. And if that's not used, if I don't use that in future, uh, future shows or in future anythings, please <laughs> reprimand me because that is just brilliant. I will. I will reprimand you if you if you do not use that. I will not Perfect. reprimand you if you want to talk about other players who you <laughs> thought had a good game. We should also maybe talk about some people who had not as good of games, but we can save that for now. Sure. Yeah, I'll take the center backs, just combining mm-hmm. them into one. Sure. I think Adam Snavely tweeted, uh, somebody check on Joe because the center backs are doing good things. That's that's a, <laughs> a summation of what he said. I don't remember what it was exactly. Wait, do you but, have do you have concerns about the center backs historically? No. Well, well, yes, with the U.S. specifically. But I love Taylor. I love a center back who can do things with the ball, who can break lines, who can dribble forward at times when the moment is right and just be an offensive contributor. And these guys, John Brooks and Matt Miazga, were offensive contributors in this game. You talked about already a John Brooks pass over to the right side of the field, or maybe it was to Sebastian Legette. But both of those things happened in this game. Matt Miazga breaking lines with his passes into the feet of U.S. attackers. I love seeing that. And it's a good, it's a good method of attacking. And both of these two guys, John Brooks, Matt Miazga, were capable of doing that. They did that very well. 
And then looking to the bench, to two guys who didn't play in this game, I'm, I'm thinking we'll probably see them against Panama. Tim Ream can do that with his left foot on the left side of, of, of defense, whether that's as a left back, but pre- predominantly as a, a left-sided center back. Chris Richards can do that as well with the ball. And so I love seeing Burhalter bringing in guys and the U.S. developing players who like to pass the ball and do offensive things because we, we saw moments in this game when that pays off and that can be a really big offensive boost. So I wanted to credit John Brooks and Matt Miazga for bringing that offensive firepower even from the middle of defense. Yeah, I think Miazga has that one moment when he overcommits, gets beat, has to uh, foul, give up a yellow card. I think he argues he was fouled. But that <laughs> moment aside, I, I thought they were they were excellent tonight. I thought for the most part they, they dealt with things over the top. They kept possession really well. They kept their shape really well. They too, when Wales would sort of counterattack down those channels, I think didn't get pulled out. Their communication level was pretty excellent. So, uh, yeah, I have nothing but happy things to say about our center backs. I think we're not going to preview the Panama game necessarily. What we can maybe do is fold in some of our criticisms in a moment with what would we like to see or if we wanted to have a quick conversation about like what would make us happiest in some of the starters for that Panama game. We can do that. Um, but I would also then like to talk about Timothy Weah for a moment because he does come on as a substitute. Uh, I thought – did you have him starting? Uh, I th- I think I did. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I did, and I think you had Yanis uh, starting. I did. They both I did. They both did some stuff off the bench, actually. They did, but to see, I mean, and I love Ulysses Yanis. I wanted him to get another penalty. I was sad he did not, but I was really excited to see Tim- to see Timothy Weah not just playing again, not just healthy, but just like it's a reminder of how good he is and how lively he is and feisty he is because he does not back down from a challenge. He gets into it with the Welsh defenders. I think at one point he bodies somebody off the ball and they complain to the referee and then stand up and they had like three inches on him. So I thought him coming in and just looking lively, looking feisty, he's a player that I would very much like to see get some more minutes against Panama and we'll see what happens. He's one of the players that I think would, would fit very well with a false nine. I yeah. think having him next to Sebastian Legette, next to Jesus Ferreira, next to Josie Altador would be a huge benefit because he has the energy and the motor and the legs to break in beyond the back line and, and stretch the defense vertically to create space for the players who want the ball at their feet. We didn't get to see a ton of that from Wea because he comes in pretty late in the yeah. second half. But that idea, I think, is something that I started to contemplate watching him out there, watching him run, track back really, really fast. And I think he fouled a guy on the play that I'm thinking of. There were about 87 fouls, I think, that the U.S. committed in the last (laughs) 15, 20 minutes of the game, Um, give or take 75 fouls, probably. Um, But there were lots of those moments. And seeing seeing Tim Weah out there made me think of what the U.S. attack could be with maybe a slightly different starting eleven. I want to talk about one of those fouls for a moment, not a Timothy Weah foul, but a different one, because I'm aware that I might just be old man screaming at the clouds here. And Joe, I, I would genuinely like to know what you think about this one, even if you vehemently disagree and, and call me a fool. Please don't do that. <laughs> but we do have the moment with Gio Reyna when there's the counterattacking opportunity for the United States. He gets stepped on. I don't think it's deliberate, but I understand why he might feel like it was deliberate. But I think it's a defender going in, uh, trying to make a play or trying to make sure he gets goal side, steps on Reyna, clips him, brings him down. I forget who the defender is, but he then continues his run. The ball goes to the goalkeeper. I think the goalkeeper plays it to him or he plays it back to the goalkeeper. Reyna gets up and is quote unquote making a play on the ball, but is definitely retaliating, barges into his back. Referee does not give a card. I think definitely could have. And I just want to spotlight this for a moment. 
but not because like, ah, you know, like, like I get it in that moment, you're going to be frustrated. You're young. You feel like this was a chance and they took it away. I'm going to be mad. But the reason why I want to focus on it is because this is a thing we've seen him do before. He did this last season uh, and it ended up costing his team a goal because he has a retaliatory moment. I think he barges into somebody after the ball is gone. Dortmund go and score, and then VAR shows that he fouled somebody off the ball. The The goal is taken back. I can't remember if he's carded or not, but it's it's that sort of like you've got to pay attention to that, and especially in something like CONCACAF where you know that people are going to have a go. You know there's not going to be VAR, and so you've got – in my mind, that's just a moment of like I, I get it. I get why you want to retaliate. I think Stu Holden was like, I like it. He's shown some feistiness, but for me – Given that we've seen that backfire in the past, it did stand out on the wrong way for me. I've given you my explanation as to why I was concerned about it. I welcome you to say, like, nah, I don't care. No, I, I'm mostly with you. I, I also am slightly with Stu. I like the feistiness and mm-hmm. the a little bit of a temper, but also it needs to be measured. And I feel like I've said that word a lot in this podcast because I think yeah. that might be the word that best describes uh, an international friendly. Yep. Um, or at least what a response to that friendly should be. <laughs> But, but Gio Reyna did not have a good game. And I think no. at times we can see that frustration boil over. In this in this instance, it was a relatively minor thing. But we're seeing now, as you pointed out, I didn't remember that first incident that you mentioned happening in the past. But now we're starting to see a little bit of a trend. And he's 17. I'm not, I'm not concerned about this, really. But it is something to, to at least watch for, to mm-hmm. see how he responds in, in good moments and bad moments. I have no issue with putting that moment a little bit under the microscope and at least filing it away to see if, if it creeps up again. Like yeah. it, it's, it's overall, it's fine. And I think it's fine. And I, I think we're both on the same page in that regard, but something to note. Absolutely. I think it was Dortmund Leverkusen. I could be wrong, but I think that's what it was. So uh, yeah, it's, it's not a thing that makes me then say like, ah, no, I don't want him. I don't want him playing anymore. I don't know if we're going to get him starting the next game. Uh, I wouldn't mind if we did. I, I really hope we're going to get Anthony Robinson starting again. Cause I would say, I don't think Reyna had the best night. I think probably the player who had the least good night is Anthony Robinson. I wouldn't say he had a bad game, but I think he had it like, like in, in the same way that like some of our concerns about other players were, were calmed or were answered outright with Anthony Robinson. The knock has been like, he's very fast, but is he going to like, like put you at risk defensively? Is he going to sort of lose the ball while dribbling forward? Can he kind of complete passes when we need him to? Will he track runners? He, he did some things today that was good. And then he did some things that were bad. He, I think has two giveaways in the first 15 minutes of the game, both of which lead to very good counterattacking opportunities for Wales. Um, there's a couple different times when he drives forward with the ball and loses it two different times or two of those times. He is the one getting screamed at by Weston McKinney, slow it down, keep the ball, don't lose the ball. And then the one that I didn't notice on the first viewing, but upon the second one I did, um, is that I think he is, maybe this is his briefing, but I think he is so focused on helping lead that press because I think the United States did a very good job of pressing when Wales were trying to build out. I think they pretty routinely forced Wales long or would win the ball back. But I think Robinson would be gambling a little bit on we're going to win that ball back, I'm going to go. And twice he thinks they've won it back. He sprints forward five yards and then the United States haven't. And now he is 5, 10, 15 yards out of play. This is exemplified in my mind by the best chance that Wells have. Do you remember the one in the second half when it's like a quick counter the, or the U.S. gives up possession, Weston McKinney with a terrible header, Wales go the other way, uh, player runs in. 
think it's Danny James, uh, has a very well-hit shot, but it is not the best angle, and Zach Steffen makes that save. Do you remember that sequence? Yep, yep, I do. So if you if, if people go back and watch, uh, it's a long ball over the top that I think Anthony Robinson could win, but John Brooks comes running in, very clearly calls him off. Uh, Robinson does not challenge for it. Brooks wins it, heads it back down the field. Weston McKinney then goes for a kind of like a settling pass with his head backwards and heads it right to a Welsh player. So not great from Weston McKinney, but then as Wales turn and attack, Anthony Robinson pretty much just stands there and watches the ball and realizes about two seconds too late, like, oh no, that's my mark. And at that point has lost position. He's no longer goal side and is about two or three yards behind, and that leads to that chance. Even with the pace he has, he can't make it up because, as I said, I think it's Danny James. Daniel James is very fast. But this is also a very small sample size for Anthony Robinson with the national team, and that might be nerves. That might be a little bit of uncertainty or not being quite sure what he's being asked to do, or it might even well be that he is doing what Greg Berhalter has asked, and therefore it's okay if he loses the ball a little bit or if he does get caught out a little bit because he's contributing elsewhere. And that's why I really want to see him against Panama, because I would assume... Slightly weaker opposition. It was not Wales's first team, but I, I still think he will probably look better against Panama. But I think another run out can only benefit him. So I hope we do get to see more of him in the next game. I think Anthony Robinson rebounded well from his start, generally speaking, because I had uh, the way I took notes in this game is I did notes every 15 minutes. And I, I, in addition to taking notes of specific plays, I did more overarching themes every 15 minutes. And after the first 15 minutes, one of the notes that I put down is Anthony Robinson is struggling. He did have those couple of turnovers early on in the game that cost the U.S. or or nearly cost the U.S., certainly cost them the ball. Overall, after that point, I think he got better. He got more comfortable in this game. I like how you highlighted that moment when Wales have their best chance. It's the one you just walked us through. That slow 63rd reaction. 63rd minute, by the way. Perfect. 63rd minute. It's It's Robinson with a slow reaction. But some slow reactions from the less, from the rest of the U.S. defensive line, I True. think, too. So I'm with you, Taylor. I want to see him get another appearance because overall, I don't think he was bad in this game. Was he the best performer? No. But the way he responded, especially from those first 15 minutes, I thought was an encouraging sign. And if we're thinking about who the U.S. plays on a regular basis, teams like Panama, having an attacking left back who's going to provide width on that left side instead of a more reserved player... Tim Ream is the only guy who could play that spot, really, other than Serginho Dest in this particular roster. You want to have Anthony Robinson getting reps against teams and in games where the U.S. is likely going to be more on the front foot. So, yeah, I'm all for Robinson starting on Monday. All right. Um, what about the rest of that back line? Would you be okay with it being Robinson, Ream, Richards? That's a lot of R's. And Reggie? Yeah, that's fine with me. I think that's probably what I would bank on uh, is those four guys getting looks along the back line because we saw a little bit of Reggie Cannon in the, the last couple minutes of this game. None of either of those two center backs. And then we both agree we want to see more of Anthony Robinson. So it seems like kind of a perfect back four of players to run out against Panama. All right. Any other players that you would especially like to see either start or get minutes against Panama? I'd like to see Giannis get minutes. I think he comes off the bench and is very bright in this game. He has that shot from outside the box on one of his first touches, if not his first touch. I like that, and I like Uli Giannis. We we saw him in January camp. We've seen him with the USD20s in the past. He's got something on that side, and I think he was better than Conrad De La Fuente was in this game. Different situations by the time Uli Giannis comes on, but still, he's a guy that I very much want to see get a look out on the left wing, cutting inside, 
and and doing things with his right foot in the attack. I agree. Uh, I would I would say I would like to see Tyler Adams again. I, I hope we do, but I won't be so disappointed if it is Johnny Cardoso because I, I thought he. He was definitely a physical uh, presence there. He picks up a yellow in this one. Uh, but I think I had a friend text me to say, like, oh, he's ready for CONCACAF, and we are playing a CONCACAF opponent, so why not? Uh, I would not hate to see him uh, given this start and see if he can do things similar to Tyler Adams and can help the United States that way, or if he can't, and then we have some answers. But I, I wouldn't mind either one of them uh, starting against Panama. Yeah, I'm with you, and I think that speaks to a, a larger point about Things that we learned from this game. We learned a little bit about Johnny Cardoso. Not yep. not a lot, but a little bit. We learned a lot, I would say, about Yunus Musa. We learned that Tyler Adams can play that number six spot in his own way and make it his own position, different from Michael Bradley in the way that he plays it, but but still effective in certain moments. We learned that the U.S., again, speaking to that Tyler Adams thing, that they can possess in a different shape. There was a lot of things that we we can take away from this game and, and learn not to panic about, not to panic that the U.S. Yeah. didn't score goals, not to panic about the whole false nine thing. We can take things away from that attacking shape of the defensive press again. That These are things that we can learn from and, and hopefully see glimpses of and maybe even improvements on against yep. Panama. And I, I love that. I do as well. And I look forward to that game. Joe and I are going to be uh, reviewing that one. Joe, do you have uh, anything else to discuss from this game? I don't think I do. No. Taylor, what about you? I have one thing, and it's very, very weird and silly, but it's a thing that I just, I don't know why it's in my notes. It stuck with me. Uh, John Strong and Stu Holden doing the commentary spent, I, I don't know how many minutes, but four different times in this game, there were conversations about how Conrad De La Fuente had Conrad on the back of his jersey. <laughs> they both seemed very tickled that a player would have their first name on the jersey. I think they said it's the first time that's ever happened. They have that conversation when he's on the field. It comes up later on in the game once he's already subbed off. And they're literally having this conversation about how strange it is while Johnny Cardoso is on the field with Johnny on the back of his shirt. <laughs> and for some reason, that was just so odd to me that they were like, can you believe this guy's got his first name on it? It's like, but that guy does too. Why aren't you guys worried about that one? I don't know why it stood out, but it did. So I'm mentioning it here. Well, my takeaway from that is... Is if we ever play pickup again in a post coronavirus world, Taylor, mm-hmm. if I, if I come in with a jersey with just Joe on the back of my, my, mm-hmm. my shirt, I'm going to be a better soccer player, right? Yeah, that's how it I'm works. pretty sure that's how it works. Yeah. Uh, my, my impression has always been, yes, first name on the back and then white shoes. I'm a big believer in the idea that white shoes make you faster. It's just Perfect. how it works. Uh, yeah, that's all you need, Joe, and then you're good. I would hope that you would, you would, uh, spice it up a little bit. Like, can we get a J-O with like an accent mark on it or something? Absolutely. We'll, we'll throw some accents on there. Nothing, nothing is going to stop me from using every linguistic method available to me to improve my skill on the soccer field. That's good. I think me <laughs> ending the show by saying, can we get a J-O is not a great way. So I'll just instead say, Joe, thanks so much for taking the time to, uh, to break down USA nil, Wales nil. I almost said USA Panama. Uh, we will be back to discuss Panama on Monday. But for now, Joe, thank you again. Of course, Taylor. Listeners, thank you all very much for listening. And as I've said, we will be back Monday. Uh, you will have an episode of Allocation Disorder in your feed tomorrow, as well as another episode of Soccer 101. Busy times around here, but I look forward to all that. But for now, thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you again soon. 